Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, Tucson, Arizona, the old Pueblo. Episode 129. It's 129, and I'm out of title ideas. This episode of Craft Lit is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Well, hello! I I have no explanation for this, but I am so excited to be podcasting tonight. I don't know why. I am just jazzed. It's... who knows? I'm running with it, though. It's been a busy week. It will continue to be um, a busy few weeks until I am safely ensconced in New York City, at which point everything will slow down to a dead crawl because there's only so much one can do when one is traveling. But it's good. It's all good. It's really good. So for those of you who are new to the podcast, and we are getting more and more of you, I wanted to let you know that in the show notes, in the upper right-hand corner, you will see a link to our library. This is the library of previous podcasts. From time to time, strange things happen with the um, the little links to the MP3s from there. If something odd should happen, please email me directly at mama knits all one word at gmail.com and I will get on the problem as rapidly as I can. I am also going back and fixing the mp3 files from the first I think it's the first eight or nine episodes where the files were really big like 120 megabytes or something crazy like that. I am re- burning them out of GarageBand and into mp3 format. It takes a long time to do that. It takes almost 45 minutes for um, one of our episodes to go through a mix down because there are different tracks and different things that are happening and you don't care. (laughs) I can feel you rolling your eyes right now. It's a long way of saying the library is complete, but the host that carries our stream sometimes has weird things happen. So if that should happen, please let me know. Also, the other thing, if you are on iTunes, almost invariably, uh, any subscription that anyone has to any podcast, that subscription will completely get futzed up at some point. Just know that it's going to happen and know that it's going to happen to you. Unsubscribe, resubscribe, And that, for reasons which escape me, should fix your problem. If it doesn't, for this podcast, once again, please let me know, and I will contact iTunes as quickly as I can. I truly am out of ideas for today's um, title. The chapter we're about to read is called The Interview, and all I could think of was something about a really bad interview from Hades. And that just didn't seem like a good podcast title. So I'm happy, but I'm not feeling all that creative today. So, you know, it happens. After 129 episodes, I think I'm allowed a pretty lousy title. (laughs) Oh, and after 129 episodes. So next week, episode 130, that's our anniversary. It's three years of Craft Lit. And going into four, 
And I'm just completely freaked out by how fast time has flown because it seems like yesterday that I was sitting on the floor in the brutal humidity and heat of New York and um, and being an early podcaster. And uh, it's kind of weird, but it's good. It's good. It's really good. And along that line, the we've been at this for a long time thing, I wanted to remind you, I completely forgot, I was excited last week too, that this month, the month of April, our incentive is Artists, Journals, and Sketchbooks. It is a books by Lynn Perella, and the subtitle is Exploring and Creating Personal Pages. And one of the things that I said before was, even if you are not interested in doing kind of crafty, journaly, art cardy things, um, but you like art, I think... I think you will enjoy just gazing at the beauty of this book. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. And the things people come up with makes me want to have a lot more time, disposable income, and lots and lots of craft supplies. But uh, even though I don't have any of those things right now, uh, I recommend the book. It's wonderful. So anyone who donates in the month of April is in the running for that. Uh, I'm talking to Daisy at Yellow Dog. We're going to get something else worked out. And we have, of course, the Craftlit Challenge for this book to come up with something that would use scarlet yarn uh, that somehow embodies, reflects, is imbued with the power of the scarlet letter. The details for the 2009 Craftlit Challenge can be found in the show notes. I will be repeating those challenge notes throughout the reading of this book or until I get tired of copying and pasting the same text. Speaking of that, I am about to hurl some large piece of computer equipment somewhere because I have been trying to get a WordPress blog up and running for Craftlit and it is going to kill me. I Maybe it's just because I speak Mac better than I speak PC. Or maybe it's just because I'm stupid. I can't quite figure it out. You're supposed to be able to install WordPress as a functioning kind of faux website on your hard drive so that you can play with the site and then upload it and it'll go live and everything's happy, right? Except the little, you know five minutes to installing WordPress. None of the instructions make any sense to me. They're all PC talk. And I've pieced together parts of it, but not only that, but I'm having a really hard time with the CSS on the WordPress blog template that I have selected. Everybody who I talk to says, oh man, that is the best template. And then we all agree that none of us can figure out how to fix the problem. I've actually emailed the designer of this template, and he lives in Denmark. I haven't heard back from him. I don't even know if he got my email. It's probably gotten into a spam filter. I'm never going to figure this out. But uh, the new homepage domain website thing is coming along. And in fact, if you go to your browser right now in front of God and everyone and type www.craftlit.com. It will, in fact, send you to our current show notes site, not the new one. Soon, 
someday, miraculously, you will just pop into the new website. I'm very excited about that. But it's, it's not happening yet because WordPress is stalking me and trying to kill me. <sighs> On the stalking and trying to kill me side of things, <laughs> many, many years ago, uh, actually not many, many years ago, about a year ago, uh, a listener of ours sent me the Enchanted Chocolate Pot, the Sorcery and Cecilia books that uh, a number of people mentioned kind of during our little women phase when we were talking about stuff like that. Wonderful books. I am so traumatized by the fact that we have to stick with public domain books because, you know, they're free and all. Because the Sorcery and Cecilia books are just lovely, funny, smart. Wow, do they nail the language of that whole Regency period. And um, I mean, so much so that sometimes you have to go to Wiki Wiktionary and look up a few well-placed terms that have been lost to the ethers. Really good writing, lots of fun. If you have a young girl who likes young adult fiction but isn't quite ready for Twilight, um, she might really dig this. It's kind of Harry Potter for chicks, but not so heavy on the magic thing. Bad guys are still bad guys in this book, but um, it's really nice and not derivative of Harry Potter at all. I don't mean to imply that. It was re it's really very much its own thing. So uh, the Enchanted Chocolate Pot, fantastic. I also, on a completely ridiculous side note, I just want to share with you, I know many of our listeners are mothers who have small children and no time to themselves. I know that another enormous cross-section is young people and by young people, I mean people between like the ages of 16 or 17 and 29. <laughs> you young people, you're running around, you have lives, you're busy all the time, blah, blah, blah. We're all busy. I have found a grooming thing <laughs> that works. If you are, well, I got it at a Walgreens. I'm assuming that it's everywhere. It is a Sally Hansen product that is called Insta-Dry Fast Dry Nail Color, and it was advertised as drying in 30 seconds. I am not joking. They were selling it at our store on discount as kind of a promotion. I'm noticing a lot of these kinds of discounted promotional things happening in this economy, just trying to get stuff off the shelves, I think. So this is one of them. I got uh, number 03, Beige Blast. I tried it. And they're not kidding. 30 seconds. 30 seconds, hard to the touch. I could go pick up my son with my nails newly painted. That's what I'm talking about. So if you're in one of those moments where you have to go out and you don't have time to do your own manicure thing or go somewhere and have someone do one for you, and you just really don't have time to let the nail polish dry, you could quite literally put this stuff on, grab your purse and keys and go out the door and not ruin your nails. I'm not a big nail person, like I don't have long nails. I try and keep them short because of the artsy fartsy stuff and also because I play piano. But um, I, eh, I was told many years ago by a wise friend's mother that one of those things that you can do for yourself that makes you look professional immediately is even if it's just clear nail polish, there's something about putting nail polish on that just makes you look put together and finished. And I think she was right. 
it's kind of weird. Ooh, and in the Sorcery and Cecilia book, they're painting their nails. Who knew? During the Regency period, they had nail polish. Love that. I love learning stuff like that. You know that about me. Never mind, I'm going to stop. So I got a lovely package from our friend uh, Jenny Massey, who did the design on one of our t-shirts and who has just been a, a longtime and fabulous supporter of Craftlet. And uh, she wrote me a lovely letter. I'm not going to read all of it to you, but she wanted to support the podcast. And she sent me some yarn that she said, either I can use myself or I can use it as um, things for incentives, you know? And so I'm looking at a really spectacular um, sea blue green, just all these fabulous colors. It's a 100% extra fine merino. It is called Lace Merino. It's from Ella Ray. And it's in colorway 103, in case you have access. Um, I, I may very well keep this one, because this is really gorgeous. Uh, and it is my kind of coloring. It's also my friend Sam's kind of coloring, so maybe I'll do something for her. Anyway, gorgeous yarn, Ella Ray, lace merino, 100%. It's, um, it's springy the same way Blue Moon Fiber Arts is, so if you can't get a hold of Socks That Rock, but you can get a hold of some of the Ella Ray... I love it. It's beautiful. But the big news is she sent two skeins, gorgeous skeins. One's that's burgundy and purple and maroon and lilac kind of this dark. Anyway, that one. And then one that's more like fiesta color. That's greens and pinks and, and uh, purples and rose and ugh, gorgeous. But the cool thing is Jenny actually met these people. She said, the Yarnsmith yarn is from a small company that I've met at the Southeastern Animal Fiber Festival, or SAF, in Asheville, North Carolina. They are doing some amazing things and sure that they'd love a shout out. Well, let me tell you, Yarnsmiths, and I'm looking at the yarn, it's Kaskapa. I have no idea how they pronounce that. C-A-S-Kasapa. Oh, <laughs> Kasaba. Um, C-A-S-A-P-A. Heather, you could read that correctly. It is a blend of cashmere and baby alpaca. It is gorgeous. It's listed as a number one yarn under the yarn standards. A number one super fine, but I'll tell you, it's it's listed that way because of what it would pull to. It is a very it almost looks cabled. I'm looking at it really closely. I think it might be. It is a cabled yarn. So instead of just a simple ply, it is a much more interesting ply. It looks like it's four ply cable. Anyway, both of these skeins are that way. If I can get a close up picture of some of this yarn, I will put it on the blog. I feel that to spread the word about good people who are doing good things with good fiber, that these things should become incentives. So this will be. I am going to put the fabulous multicolored fiber on the table for the April incentive. So you have two weeks left. Uh, I will put a picture of it on the show notes no matter what. It is gorgeous. It is not cheap. It is beautiful. So again, 50% cashmere, 50% baby alpaca, 5 ounces, 430 yards, hand dyed in the US of A from Yarnsmiths at www.yarnsmiths.com. Faboo yarn that sucker and the book artists journals and sketchbooks are up for grabs for the april incentive drive 
I also got a new book, which is not up for grabs yet, but will be soon, called Fabricate, 17 Innovative Sewing Projects That Make Fabric the Star. This is by Susan Wasinger, and I am so jealous. Oh my God. Uh, she has done r- ridiculously remarkable things, and one of them I've actually tried on my own, and now that I'm reading her instructions, I'm realizing what I did wrong. She, her whole concept about this book is that you don't have to wait to find the perfect fabric. You can take a fabric and make it do what you want it to do, whether it's by beating it or ironing it into submission or tacking it down in all sorts of interesting ways or washing it until it felts. There are all these different things you can do to make a fabric more interesting or more useful or more intriguing or more appropriate to you and your personality and what you like to do. Nothing in this book is out of my ability range. Now, I I have sewn on a regular sewing machine with, you know, backwards, forwards, and eventually I was able to graduate to zigzag, but I did not grow up on that. I grew up on my great-grandmother's sewing machine, which went backwards and forwards really fast, both directions, but that's all it did. Now I have a little bit better one. And, you know, not better in quality in some ways, because that old one was a workhouse and indestructible, noted by the fact that it's probably close to 100 years old and still working at my mom's house. But but I have a, a machine that does a few more things now. Nothing particularly fancy, but little things. If you have a machine that goes backwards and forwards, there's nothing in this book that's out of your range. If you have ever, mm, let me see, uh, made a skirt that had pleats, um, cut a fabric pattern out using the you know chart paper that they give you, the see-through paper that you pin down, um, this is good for you. If you have ever Oh, done something even vaguely tailored. Like I remember I made kind of a semi-unstructured jacket, but it did have darts in it uh, and it was lined. If you've ever done something like that, that far into the world of sewing, then the stuff in here is a breeze for you. Lovely, lovely, interesting, interesting patterns. And the other thing that I liked is a lot of it is kind of jumping off points, which by now you probably can tell about me. Instructions are nice and all And I need to make the recipe correctly once, but once I am done, having done the recipe once, I want to do my own thing. And this book is is definitely supportive of that kind of tood. So yay, a new book to look at. I will put uh, a link to the Interweave site with that book on it for you in the show notes, which you can get at craftlit.com now. I'm still knitting a bunch of iPod cases. I something about double knitting just really grabbed me and I'm I'm knitting my goofy little iPod cases. I'm going to write up the patterns very soon, but I haven't yet. Uh mostly because I have been writing like writing for work and I'm buried under many many deadlines and perhaps that's why I was so happy about podcasting tonight <laughs> because I'm avoiding grading really lousy papers and uh I'm avoiding doing some work that I should really do, but I'm, I'm stuck doing it all day tomorrow, so I, I can't actually escape. I, uh, I have done our, uh, my work for our 
Tucson Hand Weavers and Spinners Guild April Invitational. I have used plastic bags, which I have fused together to create fabric. I have then decorated said fabric with stitches and feathers and fiber and all sorts of stuff. And, um, and I have created handbags, little handbags. The only thing I have left to do on them is the uh, closure. Whether it's a button or a snap, I have no <laughs> clue what I'm going to do now. I think I'm probably going to wind up pasting magnets. You know, those little magnet strips that you can buy that are stickum. I think I'm going to be pasting those on and calling it a day. Last year, I made my fabulous Arizona Desert sunrise, uh, Sunset Slippers, which are currently on my feet. And uh, I am just not up to that this year, so that's not happening. But our April Invitational is, is coming, and everybody will bring bits and pieces of what they've done and and it's really fabulous. Our April Invitational from last year, uh, we had a professional photographer come in and take a whole bunch of pictures, and from those pictures we um, created originally a calendar, and now we have a journal that uh, the Guild is selling as a fundraiser, and I may put a link to that on the show notes as well, and, um, and see if any of you are interested after you get a look at it. Uh, I am ready to go to Maryland Sheep and Wool. I have not only my digital recorder, but I now have a clip-on mic for me and a stereo mic that I can put in front of unsuspecting listeners to record you. Because um, I kind of want to wander around Maryland Sheep and Wool and just talk to people and get some audio that way, and then I'll bring that back and play it for you on the cast. All right, I think that is enough of my life and all of the pieces of my life that I'm sitting here looking at spread out in front of me, which means it's time to get to chapter four of (laughs) The Scarlet Letter, because I am reading this chapter to you again. I hope you're not getting sick of me doing that. So to rehash chapter three, The Recognition, poor Hester Prynne stood there on the scaffold while her some guy with a hump old guy sees her she recognizes him he puts his fingers to his lips and wags his finger at her and after all of that drama uh, the minister Mr. Dimsdale is charged with getting Hester to confess who the man was who got her in this condition and she will not speak and says famously and my child must seek a heavenly father she shall never know an earthly one dimsdale's response is she will not speak wondrous strength and generosity of a woman's spirit she will not speak which i think kind of gives stuff away hawthorne does something at the end of the chapter, which I think I briefly mentioned last week, but I'm going to mention more because it's going to keep showing up more. At the end of chapter three, Hester goes back into the prison, and then he writes, it was whispered by those who peered after her that the scarlet letter threw a lurid gleam along the dark passageway of the interior. Hawthorne does this really interesting thing where, and I've mentioned this before, where he gives you a almost always he will give you a completely logical, rational explanation for why something is happening. 
but he will also give you a supernatural explanation for why something is happening. Usually he gives the supernatural first, and then he kind of plays it out. Some of this, I think, comes from uh, Hawthorne. Hawthorne had spent a lot of time, as we've said before, with Emerson and Thoreau. And I will read you some Emerson and Thoreau uh, as we meander through this book. Because you'll definitely see the influences from them on this story. And and on, uh, I think, Hawthorne's per, um, characterization of Hester. And, and a few other things that go on in the book. However... Hawthorne was never as relentlessly upbeat as Emerson. He's, um, he and Melville were by later scholars, not by themselves, but, but by later scholars were called the anti-transcendentalists because they were darker and grimmer and closer to Gothic. Um, certainly Moby Dick is not, you know, a happy-go-lucky, lump, happy-go-lucky romp through the ocean. <laughs> Nor is The Scarlet Letter a happy-go-lucky love story. It is a love story, though. A tortured one. But but sometimes that makes it good. So you kind of have this dark edge to everything in Hawthorne. And I think this supernatural stuff is part of that dark edge. So in in the chapter that we are about to read and i will probably break into it at a couple of different points hester is back in her cell in the prison with her baby and this chapter chapter four is called the interview i'll give you 25 cents to guess who's going to come in and talk to her what will happen in this chapter is you will get uh everything you needed to know about Hester and her husband. And it's probably not what you're expecting, which I also give Hawthorne a lot of credit for. I certainly expected her, this older gentleman, her husband, to respond one way and one way only to her predicament. And I think you might be pleasantly surprised. Uh, It's still horrifying, but you know, pleasantly surprised, nonetheless. So, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. Chapter 4, The Interview After her return to the prison, Hester Prynne was found to be in a state of nervous excitement that demanded constant watchfulness, lest she should perpetrate violence on herself, or do some half-frenzied mischief to the poor babe. As night approached, it proving impossible to quell her insubordination by rebuke or threats of punishment, Master Brackett, the jailer, thought fit to introduce a physician. He described him as a man of skill in all Christian modes of physical science, and likewise familiar with whatever the savage people could teach in respect to medicinal herbs and roots that grew in the forest. By the way, I always get the feeling that here, like in Conrad's Heart of Darkness, when you hear Hawthorne talk about the the savages, that he is putting in quotation marks. I think he's very clearly versed on the Native American relationship with the early settlers, and that in the beginning... Again, during William Bradford, it was actually a a fairly positive relationship, all in all. Um, It was only later that we had problems. Um, But yeah, Hawthorne just never seems to buy the whole savage thing. 
he like like Conrad, you always kind of feel like he knows who the savages really are. Okay. So, uh, this, so this doctor skilled in Christian modes of physical sci- science and familiar with whatever the savage people could teach in respect to medicinal herbs and roots that grew in the forest. To say the truth, there was much need of professional assistance, not merely for Hester herself, but still more urgently for the child, who, drawing its sustenance from the maternal bosom, seemed to have drank in with it all the turmoil, the anguish, and despair which pervaded the mother's system. It now writhed in convulsions of pain, and was a forcible type in its little frame of the moral agony which Hester Prynne had borne throughout the day. Forcible type? Um, printing press. Um, it's like she, she's the platonic ideal of moral agony. She is physically portraying, embodying, imbued with moral agony. And of course, those of us who have nursed our children, <laughs> um, that's not so far off. You know, what you eat is what they are. Uh, or at least that was, boy, that was the case with me. All right. Closely following the jailer into the dismal apartment appeared that individual of singular aspect whose presence in the crowd had been of such deep interest to the wearer of the scarlet letter. He was lodged in the prison, not as suspected of any offense, but as the most convenient and suitable mode of disposing of him until the magistrates should have conferred with the Indian sagamores respecting his ransom. His name was announced as Roger Chillingworth. The jailer, after ushering him into the room, remained a moment marveling at the comparative quiet that followed his entrance, for Hester Prynne had immediately become as still as death, although the child continued to moan. And hey, just for a moment, Roger Chillingworth? Hawthorne likes the Dickens thing, the naming people how they sound, making the way people's names sound reflect who they are. So, Roger Chillingworth. Prithee, friend, leave me alone with my patient, said the practitioner. Trust me, good jailer, you shall briefly have peace in your house, and, I promise you, Mr. Prynne shall hereafter be more amenable to just authority than you may have found her heretofore. Nay, if your worship can accomplish that, answered Master Brackett, I shall own you for a man of skill indeed. Verily the woman hath been like a possessed one, and there lacks little that I should take in hand to drive Satan out of her with stripes, which means whipping her. The stranger had entered the room with the characteristic quietude of the profession to which he announced himself as belonging. Nor did his demeanor change when the withdrawal of the prison-keeper left him face to face with the woman, whose absorbed notice of him in the crowd had intimated so close a relation between himself and her. His first care was given to the child, whose cries indeed as she lay writhing on the trundle bed made it of peremptory necessary to postpone all other business to the task of soothing her. He examined the infant carefully, and then proceeded to unclasp a leathern case, which he took from beneath his dress. It appeared to contain medical preparations, one of which he mingled with a cup of water. My old studies in alchemy, observed he, and my sojourn for above a year past among the people well versed in the kindly properties of simples, have made a better physician of me than many that claim the medical degree. Here, woman, the child is yours, she is none of mine, neither will she recognize my voice or aspect as a father's. 
Administer this draft, therefore, with thine own hand. Hester repelled this offered medicine, at the same time gazing with strongly marked apprehension on, into his face. "'Wouldst thou avenge thyself on the innocent babe?' whispered she. "'Foolish woman!' responded the physician, half coldly, half soothingly. "'What should ail me to harm this misbegotten and miserable babe? The medicine is potent for good, and were it my own child, yea, mine own as well as thine, I could do no better for it. As she still hesitated, being in fact in no reasonable state of mind, he took the infant in his arms, and he himself administered the draft. It soon proved its efficacy, and redeemed the leech's pledge. Leech is an old-fashioned word for doctor. The moans of the little patient subsided, its convulsive tossing gradually ceased, and in a few moments, as is the custom of young children after relief from pain, it sank into a profound and dewy slumber. The physician, as he had a fair right to be termed, next bestowed his attention on the mother. With calm and intent scrutiny, he felt her pulse, looked into her eyes, a gaze that made her heart shrink and shudder because so familiar and yet so strange and cold, and finally, satisfied with his investigation, proceeded to mingle another draft. I know not Lethe nor Nepenthe, remarked he, but I have learned many new secrets in the wilderness, and here is one of them, a recipe that an Indian taught me in requital of some lessons of my own, that were as old as Peraskalus. Drink it. It may be less soothing than a sinless conscience. That I cannot give thee but it will calm the swell and heaving of thy passion, like oil thrown in the waves of a tempestuous sea. And just so you know, footnote, Lethe and Nepenthe. For those of you who remember your Greek mythology, Lethe was the river of forgetfulness in Greek mythology. Nepenthe was an Egyptian drug used to dispel sorrow through forgetfulness. I think that was probably the Greek name for an Egyptian drug. He presented the cup to Hester, who received it with a slow, earnest look into his face. Not precisely a look of fear, yet full of doubt and questioning as to what his purposes might be. She looked also at her slumbering child. I have thought of death, said she, have wished for it, would even have prayed for it, were it fit that such as I should pray for anything. Yet if death be in this cup, I bid thee think again, ere thou beholdest me quaff it. See, it is even now at my lips. Drink, then, replied he, still with the same cold composure. Dost thou know me so little, Hester Prynne? Are my purposes want to be so shallow? Even if I imagine a scheme of vengeance, what could I do better for my object than to let thee live? than to give thee medicines against all harm and peril of life, so that this burning shame may still blaze upon thy bosom. As he spoke, he laid his long forefinger on the scarlet letter, which forthwith seemed to scorch into Hester's breast as if it had been red-hot. He noticed her involuntary gesture and smiled. Live, therefore, and bear about thy doom with thee in the eyes of men and women, in the eyes of him whom didst call thy husband, in the eyes of yonder child, and that thou mayest live, take off this draught. 
Without further expostulation or delay, Hester Pin drained the cup, and at the motion of the man of skill seated herself on the bed where the child was sleeping, while he drew the only chair which the room afforded, and took his own seat beside her. She could not but tremble at these preparations, for she felt that, having now done all that humanity or principle, or if it so were a refined cruelty impelled him to do for the relief of physical suffering, he was next to treat with her as the man whom she had most deeply and irreparably injured. Hester, said he, I ask not wherefore nor how thou hast fallen into the pit, or say rather thou hast ascended to the pedestal of infamy on which I found thee. The reason is not far to seek. It was my folly and thy weakness. I, a man of thought, the bookworm of great libraries, a man already in decay, having given my best years to feed the hungry dream of knowledge. What had I to do with youth and beauty like thine own? Misshapen from my birth hour, how could I delude myself with the idea that intellectual gifts might veil physical deformity in a younger girl's fantasy? Men call me wise. If sages were ever wise in their own behoof, I might have foreseen all this. I might have known that as I came out of the vast and dismal forest and entered this settlement of Christian men, the very first object to meet my eyes would be thyself, Hester Prynne, standing up, a statute of ignominy, before the people. Nay, from the moment when we came down the old church steps together, a married pair, I might have beheld the balefire of that scarlet letter blazing at the end of our path. Thou knowest, said Hester, for depressed as she was, she could not endure this last quiet stab at the token of her shame. Thou knowest that I was frank with thee. I felt no love, nor feigned any. True, replied he, it was my folly. I have said it. But up to that epoch of my life I had lived in vain. The world had been so cheerless. My heart was a habitation large enough for many guests, but lonely and chill, and without a household fire. I longed to kindle one. It seemed not so wild a dream, old as I was, and somber as I was, and misshapen as I was, that the simple bliss which is scattered far and wide for all mankind to gather up might yet be mine. And so, Hester, I drew thee into my heart, into its innermost chamber, and sought to warm thee by the warmth which thy presence made there. I have greatly wronged thee, murmured Hester. We have wronged each other, answered he. Mine was the first wrong when I betrayed thy budding youth into a false and unnatural relation with my decay. Therefore, as a man who has not thought and philosophized in vain, I seek no vengeance, plot no evil against thee. Between thee and me the scale hangs fairly balanced. But Hester, the man lives who has wronged us both. Who is he? Ask me not, 
replied Hester Prynne, looking firmly into his face, that thou shalt never know. Never, sayest thou, rejoined he with a smile of dark and self-relying intelligence. Never know him? Believe me, Hester, there are few things, whether in the outward world or to a certain depth in the invisible sphere of thought, few things hidden from the man who devotes himself earnestly and unreservedly to the solution of a mystery. Thou mayst cover up thy secret from the prying multitude. Thou mayst conceal it, too, from the ministers and magistrates, even as thou didst this day, when they sought to wrench the name out of thy heart and give thee a partner on thy pedestal. But, as for me, I come to this inquest with other senses than they possess. I shall seek this man as I have sought truth in books, as I have sought gold in alchemy. There is a sympathy that will make me conscious of him. I shall see him tremble. I shall feel myself shudder suddenly and unawares. Sooner or later, he must needs be mine. The eyes of the wrinkled scholar glowed so intensely upon her that Hester Prynne clasped her hands over her heart, dreading lest he should read the secret there at once. Thou wilt not reveal his name? Not the less. He is mine, resumed he, with a look of confidence, as if destiny were in one with him. He bears no letter of infamy wrought into his garment, as thou dost, but I shall read it in his heart. Yet fear not for him. Think not that I shall interfere with heaven's own method of retribution, or, to mine own loss, betray him to the grip of human law. Neither do thou imagine that I shall contrive aught against his life, no, nor against his fame, if, I, as I judge, he be a man of fair repute. Let him live. Let him hide himself in outward honor, if he may. Not the less. He shall be mine. Thine acts are like mercy, said Hester, bewildered and appalled, but thy words inter interpret thee as a terror. One thing, thou that wast my wife, I should enjoin upon thee, continued the scholar. Thou hast kept the secret of thy paramour. Keep likewise mine. There are none in this land that know me. Breathe not to any human soul that thou didst ever call me husband. Here, on this wild outskirt of the earth, I shall pitch my tent, for elsewhere a wanderer and isolated from human interests, I find here a woman, a man, a child, amongst whom and myself there exist the closest ligaments. No matter whether of love or hate, no matter whether of right or wrong, thou and thine, Hester Prynne, belong to me. My home is where thou art and where he is, but betray me not. "'Wherefore dost thou desire it?' inquired Hester, shrinking. She hardly knew why from this secret bond. "'Why not announce thyself openly and cast me off at once?' "'It may be,' he replied, "'because I will not encounter the dishonor that besmirches the husband of a faithless woman. "'It may be for other reasons. "'Enough, it is my purpose to live and die unknown. 
Let therefore thy husband be to the world as one already dead, and of whom no tidings shall ever come. Recognize me not by word, by sign, by look. Breathe not the secret above all to the man thou wottest of. Shouldst thou fail me in this, beware. His fame, his position, his life will be in my hands. Beware. I will keep thy secret as I have this, said Hester. Swear it, rejoined he, and she took the oath. And now, Mistress Prynne, said old Roger Chillingworth, as he was hereafter to be named, I leave thee alone, alone with thy infant and the scarlet letter. How is it, Hester? Doth thy sentence bind thee to wear the token in thy sleep? Are thou not afraid of nightmares and hideous dreams? Why dost thou smile so at me? inquired Hester, troubled at the expression in his eyes. Art thou like the black man that haunts the forest round about us? Hast thou enticed me into a bond that will prove the ruin of my soul? Not thy soul, he answered with another smile. No, not thine. End of chapter 4. And by the way, the black man that haunts the forest round about us, this was old, old, old Puritan stuff, um, probably predates Puritan stuff, um, either the devil or the devil's messenger. And of course, this goes back to <sighs> old, 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 old superstition. Good chapter, huh? Chillingworth. So Chillingworth wants her to live and doesn't want her to divulge the name of the man who got her pregnant because Chillingworth is out for the mystery. He's out to figure it out. He's all, I can figure it out. You don't have to tell me. And then she's all, but I'm not going to tell you anything anyway. <laughs> I can't even remember where I saw somebody do that, but it was hysterical because it was something like, you know, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington having a conversation. And he was all, and then he was all. It was very silly. Um, so, End of chapter four. Pretty good, huh? The next chapter is actually, I am embarrassed to say this, but it's true. Chapter five is called Hester at Her Needle. And I used to tell my kids that they could skip the chapter. It's the slowest of the first 12 chapters, I think. And for, you know, teenage kids who really haven't done any handiwork, it's all kind of symbolic and cool and all that, but it's, uh, it's, you know, character exposition and it's using metaphors that the kids really didn't understand. And so I let them skip it because I felt, honestly, that they were getting plenty of enough symbology and mythology and metaphor and simply an extended metaphor in the rest of the book. And that if I wanted to kind of keep the momentum going, um, I should give them the opportunity to skip it. And I summarized it for them and made sure that they understood the finer points and showed them some important quotes that I had them write down. But so if you're listening to the chapter next week, it's not very long. It's not any longer than the chapter tonight. Um, and you find yourself drifting off, you know, while driving or something horrifying like that. Uh, skip it. It's not bad, though. It's really not. Reading it again as an adult, an, an older adult than I was when I first taught it. 
I, I still love it. All right, so, oh, one of the conversation lines on Ravelry. Very interesting. Um, one of our listeners was a little upset that I had given uh, Puritans short shrift and that I was kind of um, stereotyping them and making something that was fairly complicated uh, about who they were and what they were doing and um, not making light of it, but just making it too too easy to say, oh, bad Puritans. Uh, and I totally agree. And I th- last week I, I was, I think, uh, making it clear that the the everything of the United States, certainly the way we're governed, um, goes right back 100% to the Puritans and the Quakers. Uh, the town hall meeting um, idea started there. And and not to put too fine a point on it, but also, uh, even though the Puritans came here and immediately, well, not so immediately, within 40 or 45 years, Uh, began to exhibit their own brand of religious intolerance. Um, There were people like Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson, uh, Roger Williams who founded um, Rhode Island, which was, I mean, the whole purpose for Rhode Island was to create a place where you could worship as you wished. And it was still, you know, pretty much a homogenous society. But you look at what, uh, what he did, and you look at Anne Hutchinson, and you look at Elizabeth Bradford, and these people are not, um, they're not stereotypes. In fact, hang on a second. So Anne Bradstreet, <laughs> she lived from somewhere around 1612 to 1672. She was prolific. She was recognized as an excellent writer, um, and her I think it was her brother-in-law who wound up getting her published. I'm going to read a couple of things because we have some time. I'm going to read a couple of things of Bradstreet's for a reason. So we'll get to the reason in the end. Um, she was, above all, a mother and a good wife. And probably her most famous poem is To My Dear and Loving Husband, which is a short little sonnet, which I will read. If ever two were one, then surely we. If ever man were loved by wife, then thee. If ever wife was happy in a man, compare with me, ye women, if you can. I prize thy love more than whole mines of gold or all the riches that the East doth hold. My love is such that rivers cannot quench, nor aught but love from thee give recompense. Thy love is such I can no way repay. The heavens reward thee manifold, I pray. Then while we live in love, let's so persever, that when we may live no more, we may live ever. It was written in 1678, so that's closing in on the end of her life. And to be able to say things like that about your husband when you've been married for a long time is lovely. Um, She, uh, not surprisingly, being when living when she was living and knowing how fragile life was and how tenuous everybody's hold on it was, she wrote this poem before she had one of her babies. And in fact, the title of the poem is Before the Birth of One of Her Children. It's not modern. (laughs) And yet, I think any of us who have given birth understand. All things within this fading world hath end. Adversity doth still our joys attend. 
No ties so strong, no friends so dear and sweet, but with death's parting blow is sure to meet. The sentence passed is most irrevocable, a common thing, yet, oh, inevitable. How soon, my dear, death may steps attend. How soon may be thy lot to lose thy friend. We both are ignorant, yet love bids me these farewell lines to recommend to thee, that when that knot's untied that's made us one, I may seem thine, who in effect am none. And if I see not half my days that's due, what nature would God grant to yours and you? The many faults that well you know I have, let be interred in my oblivion's grave. If any worth or virtue were in me, let that live freshly in thy memory. And when thou feel'st no grief, as I no harms, yet love thy dead who long lay in thine arms. And when thy loss shall be repaid with gains, look to my little babes, my dear remains. And if thou love thyself or lovest me, these, O oh, protect from stepdame's injury. And if chance to thine eyes shall bring this verse, with some sad sighs honor my absent hearse, and kiss the paper for thy love's dear sake, with whose salt tears this last farewell did take. Even today, as I read somewhere recently, women run an 8% risk of not making it through childbirth because of all the many, many things that can go wrong. And of course, the infant mortality rate in this country is still really high. So it is interesting, I think, that death was on her mind right before she was giving birth to one of her children. And along with that, and this is the last one I'm going to read to you, and then I'm going to make my commentary. Um, this one is also usually uh, excerpted in high school textbooks, so you may have already heard this one before. But this one is called Upon the Burning of Our House, July 10th, 1666. In silent night, when rest I took, for sorrow near, I did not look. I waked was with thundering noise and piteous shrieks of dreadful voice, the fearful sound of fire and fire, let no man know as my desire. I, starting up, the light did spy, and to my God my heart did cry, to strengthen me in my distress, and not to leave me succorless. Then coming out beheld a space, the flame consume my dwelling place. And when I could no longer look, I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. Yea, so it was, and so t'was just. It was his own, it was not mine, far be it that I should repine. He might of all justly bereft, but yet sufficient for us left. When by the ruins oft I passed, my sorrowing eyes aside did cast, and here and there the places spy, where oft I sat, and long did lie. Here stood that trunk, and there that chest, there lay that store I counted best, my pleasant things in ashes lie, and them behold no more shall I. Under thy roof no guest shall sit, nor at that table eat a bit. No pleasant tale shall e'er be told, nor things recounted done of old. No candle e'er shall shine in thee, nor bridegroom's voice e'er heard shall be. In silence ever shalt thou lie, 
adieu, adieu, all's vanity. Then straight I gin my heart to chide, And did thy wealth on earth abide? Didst fix thy hope on mouldering dust? The arm of flesh did make thy trust? Raise up thy thoughts above the sky, That dunghill mists away may fly. Thou hast an house on high erect, Framed by that mighty architect, With glory richly furnished, Stands permanent, though this be fled. It's purchased and paid for, too, By him who hath enough to do. A price so vast as is unknown, Yet by his gift is made thine own. There's wealth enough, I need no more. Farewell, my pelf, farewell, my store. The world no longer let me live, My hope and treasure lies above. There will be Puritans we meet in the course of this book who are not <laughs> Miss Bradstreet. <laughs> they just aren't. Um, I, I love her because of what happens in the middle of this poem, that she goes through the, sh the shock of seeing her house burned down, uh, and she, you know, she's aware enough of herself to even in the midst of the tragedy she says i blessed his name that gave and took you know i i have my priorities straight i know what really matters and yet she still winds up wandering through what's left of the house saying oh and that's where that was oh and that's where that was and then she kind of snaps out of it and says no that's vanity those things don't matter what matters is in heaven what matters is love those those are the things you set your store by and you pick up and you move on and you keep going and boy if that doesn't sum up what a lot of people are doing right now uh, I, I I think also with her to my dear and loving husband there's something that's so well, I got a very sweet email from one of our listeners who said that it, it was um, heartening for her to hear me talk about my husband because, you know, everything on TV is all either stupid husband or drama or cheating husband or drama. And it's rare that you see happily married people. I mean, there was Mad About You, which I remember we kind of looked at and said, well, there's one. But there's not a whole lot in the world right now that tells you that you can be happily married and that it's possible without being gooey and sentimental and dumb about it. You know, you pick well and you're in good shape as long as both both of you are, you know, willing to meet in the middle and everybody compromises some and you can have a really happy life. And... Um, I think the thing that I was most surprised about about Miss Bradstreet was that her sentiments about her husband seemed so normal to me. Before I'd read a lot of Puritan writing, I kind of assumed that they were old and dusty and wouldn't ever really love anyone because how could they do that? And um, I think I think she gives us a little bit of insight into the hearth side 
of what life was like in a normal Puritan family, not the people that we're going to meet in the Scarlet Letter. They are constructed by Hawthorne to assuage his guilt over his great-great-granddaddy and ignominy. (laughs) I was using the secondary pronunciation. Ignominy is correct. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Please remember to support the people who support CraftLit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And please visit the blogs and sites of CraftLit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.